Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brethren, the word is adelphoi in the Greek, and it it means brothers and sisters. It's a collective word meaning the, the fellowship. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another, for each one will bear his own load. Father, as we reconsider fresh fruit this morning, having come off of just... Lord, such an encouraging study, at least for me, on the fruit of the Spirit last week and looking at at the spiritual fruit that is of your Spirit, that is produced by you and cultivated by you. It doesn't come of us, Father, but comes of you. And now we, we come into this section, Lord, that I confess can be a little confusing. And I pray that you will take away the confusion with explanation and understanding. That you will pour out, Father, by your Spirit, revelation this morning so that we can uh, fully grasp these things and continue to enjoy the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Thank you, Father, for your word. Teach us, Holy Spirit, now we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to picture this, if you can. A mother in a tattered linen dress, seated under a lean-to, surrounded by dirty, unkempt children. She's about 32 years old, but weathered and weary, aged beyond her years. Her name is Florence Owens Thompson, born Florence Leona Christie on September 1st, 1903. You've probably never heard of her, but I bet you've seen her picture. At 17, Florence married a man by the name of Cleo Owens. Soon they had three children and they migrated west to Oroville, California, where she and her husband worked the sawmills and farms of the Sacramento Valley. She was pregnant with their sixth child when her husband Cleo died of tuberculosis in 1931. Six children at that point. She moved with her parents to Shafterville, California, where she met and married Jim Hill with whom she had three more children. She was now up to ten. So if you're doing the math, you know it should be less than that, but it was actually that, ten. It was the era of the Great Depression. And the family worked as migrant farmers following the crops back and forth between California and Arizona. Florence later recalled days when from dawn to well into dark, she picked four to five hundred pounds of cotton in a day. She said, quote, I worked in hospitals, I tended bar, I cooked, I worked in the fields, I'd done a little bit of everything to make a living for my kids. In 1936, Florence was traveling U.S. Highway 101 looking for work, and the family car's timing chain snapped, and they coasted to a stop at a pea picker's camp at Napoma Mesa. The crops were destroyed by freezing rain, and there were 3,500 people in that camp left without work or without pay, without anywhere truly to go. So while her husband Jim and two of her boys went into town to get repairs or work on repairs for the car, Florence set up a temporary shelter. 
And as they waited there in the camp, a woman by the name of Dorothea Lang came along. She was a photographer who worked with the Resettlement Administration. And she began snapping photos, and she took six of Florence and her children. The sixth image ended up reaching near-mythic status. You can Google it today. It was called the ultimate photo of the Depression era. It hit the papers and was referred to specifically as Migrant Mother. Migrant Mother. It galvanized public compassion. In fact, when people realized what was going on at that pea pickers camp, 3,500 people without food, without anywhere to turn, anywhere to go, any work to get, the government immediately sent off 20,000 pounds of food. But Florence and her family had already moved on. She remained the anonymous face of this migrant mother for 42 years. Finally, she was discovered in 1978 living in a mobile home park in Modesto, California. And when in 78 she was asked about the photo and about the experience, she said, I wish she hadn't taken my picture. I never got a penny out of it. She didn't ask my name. She said she wouldn't sell the pictures. She said she'd send me a copy, and she never did. By the way, in 1998, the original photo was sold at auction at Sotheby's in New York for $244,500. That same year, the picture became a 32-cent U.S. postage stamp. And when Florence was asked to describe her life, she said, quote, We just existed. We survived. Let's put it that way. Florence died in 1983. Her tombstone reads, Florence Leona Thompson, migrant mother, legend of the strength of American motherhood. It got me to thinking about bent backs and burnt skin and picking fruits and vegetables and and fiber in the unrelenting sun. People who would migrate back and forth from one farm to the next, following the crops, one burden at a time. And you know, when you bite into a juicy apple or a ripe red strawberry or a sweet grape, when you slide on a soft cotton shirt, you rarely think about, I rarely think about the burden that is involved in reaping such things. I don't put that to mind as I'm enjoying that apple that somebody had to pick this. Somebody put the work into it. Somebody labored that I would enjoy the fruit. There is a burden. There is such a burden with the fruit of the Spirit. Now we talked about the fruit of the Spirit last week, but fruit implies work. It implies loads to bear. It implies that somebody's got to do something. And while we talked about last week that the fruit is of the Spirit, oh, this week in part two, roll up your sleeves. Because there's work to be done. There is a labor that is called for. There is a burden for our backs. And the question is whether or not we will accept it. Let me describe the burden for you. Actually, let's let Jesus describe it for us. Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. He says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But there's still a burden. The burden remains. And sometimes as a Christian, I can run from the burden in favor of the grace, thinking that there is no burden involved in the grace. But that's not true. There is. 
to receive and walk in, to move in the flow of the grace of God, does put a burden on my life. And that's a burden I want to talk about this morning. It seems ironic to me that here at the end of this letter of Paul, where he's written about grace, where grace has been the focus of the whole thing, he has been anti the legalistic religionist. He has been staunchly opposed to those agitators who have come along and tried to say, you've got to be circumcised, you've got to keep kosher law, you've got to do this, you've got to do that, you've got to keep Torah to truly be a Christian. And Paul has stood opposed. And yet here at the end of this letter, ironically, he makes two seemingly contradictory statements that are burdensome. Note these, verse 2, he says, bear one another's burdens. And then in verse 5 he says, for each one will bear his own load. Well, that's a contradiction, Paul. Am I to bear other people's burdens or am I to bear my own load? We'll answer that in a bit. But simply the words are a little confusing in a letter of grace. Burdens? Loads? What is this, the Great Depression? What are we, migrant farmers? And note this, that Paul is addressing spiritual people. He says in verse 1, you who are spiritual do this. Which is kind of nice, if you don't want to be spiritual, you're off the hook. You who are spiritual. Listen, truly spiritual people are found in the fields. Truly spiritual people who have understood and received grace are found harvesting the fruit of the Spirit. Oh, the Spirit grows the fruit, brings the fruit, even cultivates the fruit. But we are called to the harvest. And harvest implies burden. It implies work. You who are spiritual, he says. This is a word that Paul seems to have coined. It's a word that we see just one time in the New Testament referring directly to people. This is the only time a group of people are called spiritual. You who are hoi pneumatikoi. The hoi pneumatikoi, the spiritual ones, you who are spiritual, that is those who are filled by and governed by the same spirit who is cultivating his fruit in you. If you are spiritual and the spirit cultivates the fruit in you, you are what Paul is calling this hoi pneumatikoi. Now, understand that Paul is not drawing a line up the middle of the church aisle. He's not talking to those in church who are spiritual versus those in church who are not spiritual. He's talking to the entire church and referring to the entire church as the spiritual ones. You who are spiritual, he is making no distinction. He's addressing the brethren, the Adelphoi, that is the entire faith community. Let me tell you, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have no choice but to be spiritual. You are the spiritual ones. And so we're not here this morning to make distinctions and to say some of us as followers of Jesus are more spiritual than others. No, if you follow Jesus, you are spiritual. And you who are spiritual, Paul says, well, let's read it, verse 1. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Okay, spiritual ones. Paul's concern in this letter is not simply sound doctrine. And if we think it is, then we will miss the point of the letter. What do you mean, Rick? I mean, if we read this as a theological construct, Paul is explaining and describing grace, which he is, 
And he's doing it in a holy, spiritual, and godly way, inspired by the Spirit. He is. But if we leave it there, we miss the punch. We miss the power. You see, it's not just about sound doctrine. It is about thorough compassion. Paul is writing that the people would not just understand grace, but live by grace. Be motivated by grace that the fruit of the Spirit would be at work in us and among us. That it would move from head to heart. Paul doesn't leave us wondering here at the end of the letter, how do we apply grace in our lives? How do we walk in the Spirit? Or how do we gather the fruit of the Spirit? And it's a marvelous conclusion. Because I think we could say that the key to unlocking the Spirit's cultivation is restoration. That this is at the heart of Christianity. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have been restored. Restored into a a right relationship with God through Jesus. That's restoration. That's where we all began. And once restored, we are called to restore. It is the burden of the Christian life. Several things to note, to jot down. Number one, restoration is fruitful healing action. Fruitful healing action. The word restore here in verse one is katartizo. And katartizo is literally a medical term. It means to mend or to set a fractured bone. To restore. Your doctor does it. If you break a finger or break an arm or or break a leg, they set that bone that it might be restored, that it might mend once again. But broken bones are always easier to set than broken hearts and broken lives. Those who are fractured need setting. The torn need mending. They don't need more tearing down. And the focus in our fellowship, in any church fellowship, needs to move from being a doctrinally sound people to being a thoroughly compassionate people who, by the way, are doctrinally sound. (laughs) Biblical literateness, literacy, sound doctrine is of no value if it doesn't apply to how we live, to what we do to each other, how we treat Outsiders, insiders, any-siders, if we are not changed by the sound doctrine of the Word of God, then it doesn't matter how sound it is. And restoration is healing action. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul writes, I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete. And that phrase, made complete, is mended, restored, katartizo. It's that same word. That you be mended in the same mind and in the same judgment. You see, if you recall, at Corinth, they were divided. They were broken. There were fractures in the fellowship. And Paul said, be restored. Be mended. Be healed. And that's the same word he's using here. Last week, we were talking about the fruit of the Spirit. And we talked about three bowls, if you remember. Three bowls and the nine fruit of the Spirit, the nine different varieties. First bowl was Godward fruit, and that's love, joy, and peace. 
And then the second bowl being manward fruit, which is patience, kindness, and goodness. The third bowl being that inward fruit, not just for me inwardly, but inward fruit so that outwardly I can deal with a contentious world. And that's gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Now I remind you of that because right here Paul reaches into the third bowl and pulls out gentleness. You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. And gentleness is that inward fruit of one who outwardly restores. One who seeks to bring back. Gentleness, by the way, doesn't allow me to get all riled up with religious indignation over the sins of brothers and sisters. And sometimes I do. But I'm not functioning in the Spirit when I do, I can tell you. Lesson I had a conversation last week. As long as I'm confessing to you. Where he brought something to me, made me aware of a situation, and my spiritual blood boiled. And I was honestly, I sat there and I shook my head and I was, I was angry to hear about this situation. It involves one of you here. <laughs> I found that, and again, sometimes it's that righteous indignation rising in me. Why? How come? And realized it in a moment. That's not the fruit of the Spirit. That's why I need the fruit of the Spirit. That's why I need the gentleness of the Spirit, because my response, my reaction, would be holy flesh. And so the fruit of gentleness comes in and and it replaces that religious indignation. How dare she? How could he? With gentleness. Gentleness to restore. Imagine a doctor outraged at a kid in the ER who comes in with a broken arm. You dummy. How'd you break it? Climbing a tree? How foolish can you get? What's the matter with you? Bad bedside manner. But gentleness, gentleness is required. Oh, we'll we'll get you taken care of here in a moment. We'll we'll fix this up, son. It'll be all right as he sets the bow. Gentleness. Anger is rarely an effective healing aid. And you parents know that. Kid comes in scratched up. The first thing you do is not get angry with them. That doesn't help. Gentleness is required in restoration. And restoration is a healing action. Verse 2. He says, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. I love the verse. It is kind of the culmination of the book. He comes to this point. This, I would say, is kind of a, a knockout punch to the legalizers. Let me read it again. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Hey, number two, restoration creates satisfaction. Satisfaction, that is the fulfillment of the law of Christ. It satisfies it. It comes to its full completion. Those legalists who are fighting to force the law, Paul knocks them out with this verse. No, no. You bear each other's burdens and you fulfill the law of Christ. What's the law of Christ? One word. Anybody? Love. You got it. The law of Christ is completely summed up in that one word, love. Love, the primary fruit of the nine and the fruit of the Spirit. 
The one from which all the rest of the fruit comes. Love. Jesus said in John 13, 34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love and have love for one another. I like how James describes it. James chapter 2, verse 8. He calls it the royal law. If you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. It's the law of Christ, the royal law. And listen, get this, it's important, especially for long-time Christians. You cannot agape and break God's law. Think about that. You cannot love like Jesus and be in error. So we need to love like Jesus and understand what that means. But I truly cannot express and offer and give the love of God and be opposed to the law of God. You can't do it. Back in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, listen to this one again. You were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through the love... Remember we talked about this. It's not through love serve one another. It's through the love. Through the agape. That is the agape of God. The agape of Christ. Through the love. Serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Paul quotes directly from Jesus. Who quotes directly from the Hebrew law. Matthew 22.37. Love the Lord your God. Matthew 22.39. Love your neighbor as yourself. And in verse 40 he says, On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Jesus came in and took the whole thing and boiled it down to one agape. That's the law of Christ. That is the restoration of Jesus. And if we love like Christ, we cannot be in violation of the law. We need not fear that. Well, if I'm kind, if I'm, if I'm loving to the sinner, what if then? We'll get there. But go back to verse 1 and note this. It's interesting. Note who's being restored. Because understanding that restoration is the satisfaction of the law of Christ. It fulfills that fruit of love. In verse 1, we're told who is being restored. If anyone is caught in any trespass, You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Caught in any trespass, that takes a little understanding. This may or may not be the woman caught in adultery. Okay, as an example, John chapter 8, verse 3, refers to that woman, and we talked about the story, I believe, last week. How she was pulled in and thrown to the ground, there in the temple courts, caught in the act. Well, it's a different word in John 8, 3 than it is right here. See, right here he makes a statement if anyone is caught in any trespass. But there, the word is katalambano. And katalambano means literally caught in the act. There's no other way to define that. You are caught in the midst of your sin. And she was. Of course, even so, Jesus with agape did not condemn her, but forgave and freed her. But that's how many people tend to view Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. If anyone is caught in any trespass, we think, okay, if anyone's caught in the act of sin, then our response is to restore. Here's the thing. It's a different word. Similar, but different enough to imply a different concept. The word in Galatians 6, 1 is prolambano. Just caught a lambano, caught in the act. 
prolambano, which means literally overtaken by. If anyone is overtaken by, and by the way, it's in the passive form, which means it's something that happens to someone. It's not necessarily something someone intends or desires, but it happens to them. And more likely than the person caught in the act, what we're talking about here is the person who has been overtaken by the wrong itself. That's interesting to me. Now, don't get me wrong. That doesn't mean that there is no forgiveness for the person caught in the act. But I want to, this morning, we've got to get the compassion to put ourselves in the shoes of the person who has been overtaken by sin. And I don't think it's that hard to do. Just show of hands, how many of you have been overtaken by sin in your life? Well done. (laughs) Overtaken by sin, anybody can say, oh yes, I have, absolutely. It's why the Hebrew writer says in Hebrews 12.1, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. We get stuck. We trespass into that sin. He says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Imagine it this way. You inadvertently wander into a field. And suddenly in that field, you find yourself entangled with briars and thorn bushes. And you feel like a fool, but you're unable to get unstuck. You're not sure, do I call out for help? Then I'll look like an idiot. But if I don't call out for help, I'm not getting out of here. Sin is sticky business. And there is a sin that overtakes you, that you find yourself in the midst of, and you didn't intend to get there, but hey, you're there. Well, you shouldn't have been trespassing in the first place, says the religionist. And here's the thing. When I am caught in a trespass, I may not necessarily have gone looking for it, but now I don't know how to get out of it. And I don't know that I'm even comfortable calling on others for help to get out of it because here I am and I am caught and I am stuck. And by the word, way the word trespass, anyone who is caught in any trespass is also telling it's paraptoma. Paraptoma in the Greek means a lapse or a deviation from the truth. You have now deviated into the wrong field. You have wandered down the wrong path. Whether or not it was intentional is really beside the point. Here you are, overtaken by the sin, a lapse of judgment, and you didn't go looking for it. It's still wrongdoing. Don't misunderstand. We're still talking about sin. But the heart is different here. This is not sin chosen by abject rebellion. This is not sin of someone saying, I'm going to do this because I can. I don't care what your God says, what your Bible says, what your truth says. I'm going to do what I want to do. Well, that's rebellious sin. This is the kind of sin that so often we wander into, kind of foolishly, unwittingly, but once in, we can't get out. After teaching his disciples to pray, it's interesting, Jesus uses this word. He says, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And he goes on to say in John 6.14, for if you forgive others their trespasses, 
your heavenly Father will also forgive you. If you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your trespasses. He is talking to those who will not forgive those who have wandered into sin, been overtaken by sin. So when you wander into sin and and are overtaken by it, God's not going to forgive that. If you're not willing to show compassion for another, when it happens to you, Listen, you you can't restore someone who doesn't want to be restored. Right? So that's the position of rebellion. I don't want your forgiveness. I don't need them. Fine. Okay. I can't restore that person. We're talking about the person who is caught in sin and yet desperately desires restoration. They just don't know how to do it. How do I get back? How do I find my way home from here? Restoration. Restoration is a healing action. It is satisfaction. And number three, restoration courts fruitful confession. That is, it invites confession. When one believer comes to restore another, finds them stuck in that trespass, in that field of briars, and offers to help them out. It invites confession. It opens the door to confession. It's what the Lord did with Israel. He offered it to Israel. The same exact idea. He knew the children of Israel were going to wander into sin. This is not a surprise to God. And so He gave them a specific offering for when they did, when they wandered in. It's called the sin offering. Let me just read an excerpt of it to you. This is Leviticus chapter 4, verse 27. And he says, now, if anyone of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done and becomes guilty. So two things have just happened with this Israelite. They violated God's law. Well, 613 commandments, they're going to violate God's law. And there's something in the law that perhaps they didn't understand or know or realize. They hadn't been taught it yet. So it's unintentional. But then once having done it, they realize their sin. They're in the briar patch. They understand, oh, this is a violation, and so they are guilty. Leviticus 4.28 says, If his sin which he has committed is made known to him, then he shall bring for his offering a goat, a female without defect, for his sin which he has committed. He shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and slay the sin offering at the place of the burnt offering. The priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering. With all the rest of its blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar. And then he shall remove all its fat just as the fat was removed from the sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall offer it up and smoke on the altar for a soothing aroma to the Lord. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him and he will be, listen, he will be forgiven. The forgiveness of the Lord freely offered to the children of Israel who sinned unintentionally but realized their guilt and now come confessing confession. I wonder if sometimes in the church we get it backwards. We want confession before we will show compassion. But true restoration invites confession. It comes first. It's a brother or sister who is willing to go to a brother or sister who has sinned and loves them enough to bring it to light. In love, with a heart of restoration that now allows the sinner, the trespasser, to confess the sin. That's how it's supposed to work. 
We don't stand there with arms crossed saying, I'm waiting for your confession. As soon as you give it, then we will decide if we will restore. It's really up to you. Well, remember, this person's in the briar patch. How do I get out? I see no way out. Listen, Jesus is our sin offering. The reason why all of the blood is poured out at the base of the altar is because all of His blood was poured out at the base of the cross. That He died so that we would have forgiveness. We have the sin offering. And we know we have the sin offering. So when we trespass, we might confess knowing that there is forgiveness waiting for us instantaneously. Confession following the offer of restoration. I wonder truly if this is why we as Christians avoid confession. That we are too conditioned to assume that we're going to be condemned. Boy, if they know, if they find out about this, if anyone knows what I'm doing. And then we hear verses like James 5.16, Therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. (laughs) No way I'm going to do that. Because I know what they're going to say. When they find out what I've done, the things I've said, the behavior I've engaged in, how in the world can I expect? You know, unbelievers are often all too ready to call Christians harsh and judgmental. And that's that's kind of the thing out there. Oh, they're judgmental. Judge not that you not be judged. It's the non-believer's favorite verse toward the Christian. Sadly, at times, the non-believing world has been right. We have been judgmental. I don't think intentionally. I think a lot of times, judgment within the church comes from, I don't want to violate God's law. I don't want to offend the Lord. So I don't know how to navigate this, how to help my brother in sin without offending the Lord. And I forget, I can't love and violate the law. If I am loving with the agape love of God, I'm not going to be in violation of God's law. That love is the right response. It is the right thing to do in our relationships. Speaking of the world, listen, where sin and failure reside, it is the flesh in me that wants to go on the attack. You understand what I'm saying here? Man, the world loves to say guilty until proven innocent. The world loves to look for the blame. That's the flesh. That's what the flesh does. The flesh wants to convict. It's a harsh world that says trespassers will be prosecuted. But that is not the way of the church. And that is not the way of Jesus Christ. No, His way is trespassers shall be restored. Look to restore one another. Why? Because the fruit of the Spirit is love. And joy and peace. And patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So in the church it ought to be. Trespassers will be restored. But how do we go about that then? How do we navigate restoring the person caught in the trespass? And marvelously, Paul tells us now, he covers both sides of the issue. Uh, First off, that restoration causes recognition. Recognition of, of, of what? Of my own sin nature. Get this. When I go to restore a brother or sister, it makes me all the more aware of my own sin nature. What does Paul say? Looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. 
I got problems here. I got a nature I got to deal with. And so when I go to restore, part of the deal is you don't go in alongside a brother or sister trespassing with them. You don't climb into the briar patch to make them feel more compassion. That's not the way to go about it. It's, It's the believer with a weakness for booze who doesn't take their struggling fellow believer out drinking. That's just dumb. Like, I don't know why Christians go out drinking at all, but that's just me. The follower who, who struggles with pornography doesn't sit down with another struggling follower to enjoy Fifty Shades Darker, which I cannot even believe is hitting the theaters. As if Fifty Shades of Grey wasn't bad enough, now we got to go Fifty Shades Darker. I mean, do you see how... Well, this is last day's stuff. Do you see how blatant sin has become? That it's not enough just to say we did this, or this novel came out, or this movie came out, but now we got to say, oh, no, this is worse than that was. That's what all the trailers of this movie are about, by the way. Oh, it's worse. It goes darker. It's, it's more depraved. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> Go out to dinner and come see the movie. Why would any thinking Christian take a brother or sister who's come out of adultery, or dealing with pornography, or struggling with some sexual immorality, why would you go see that movie with them? See, you're jumping into the briar patch. Well, I want to show compassion. That's not compassion, it's stupidity. Because all you're doing is joining them in the sin. Paul says, looking to yourself, so that you two will not be tempted. Well, I was just trying to encourage. You are spiritual. Restore in a spirit of gentleness, not in a spirit of foolishness. 1 Corinthians 10.12, Paul says, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. And I believe I said back when we studied this that it's those who think they've got it together who are most at risk. It's we who find ourselves in a humble position before God going, Okay, I'm going to go in and seek to restore, but Lord, you got to guard my heart and help me walk with wisdom. So restoration requires that, that recognition of my own sin nature, but restoration also compels a fruitful rejection of my own self-righteousness. This is the other side of the coin. I have a sin nature, but I also have this self-righteousness issue that sometimes comes along, creeps up, surprises Well, not me so much, but other people. Sometimes restoration can ruffle religious feathers. Sometimes we seek to restore someone and we find out that other religionists out there are saying, What are you doing? They don't deserve that. Who do you, you're joining them in sin. You're now part of the problem. And so we recoil a bit and we fear, What if someone sees me with this person? and assumes that I am now in approval of their sin. Verse 3. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. What are you worried about? Someone might think I'm sinning. Are you? Well, no. Don't worry about it. But they might have my reputation. You think you're something? You're nothing. Don't worry about it. Look to yourself so that you don't sin. But when it comes to restoring others, don't worry if someone's going to say, you're showing too much grace. (laughs) Hallelujah. May I be 
you know, accused of that more often. He's just way too gracious. Boy, if we're going to err, let's always err to the side of grace. Proverbs 16.18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. And the conceited, self-righteous Christian is self-deceived. A major trespasser without even realizing it. And by the way, it's worse. When we walk in self-righteousness, we are unable to carry out the law of Christ. Can't do it. Why? Listen, if I believed that I earned any of my salvation, even one iota of my salvation, well, then everyone else ought to be able to earn theirs too. That's the problem of self-righteousness when it comes to restoration. Are you picking up this? Are you understanding what I'm saying? That if I actually think that there's some goodness that I wrought in myself, that I produced in me, then I look around and say, you all ought to be up to it too. And if you sin and fall, (laughs) clearly you're not up to what I am. Clearly, clearly you're not as righteous as I am. But, on the other hand, if I know that all of my righteousness was blood-bought by Jesus, then when I look at a brother or sister who is caught in a trespass, my heart then goes out and says, that could be me. I understand where you're at, because I could be there. In fact, I may be there at some point, and I'm going to need your help to get me out. Is compassion. Self-righteous pride is the rotten fruit of legalism. And there is no place for it among followers of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.10 tells us so clearly, in fact, we're going to get into Ephesians here in short order. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That is not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So verse 4 then tells us, but each one must examine his own work. And then we will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to one another. Okay, so each one examine your own work. Because restoration calls for self-examination. This happens to me often. And I, I suppose I would assume it happens to many of you as well. That when you're in the process of restoring a brother or sister, you are examining your own life. I can't even count the number of times I've walked in the door and without sharing with my wife what I've dealt with during the day, what situations have I've been made aware of, I have said to her... Honey, I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful that your eyes are on me. I'm so thankful that in our marriage that we, that we pray through these things. Please hold me to account. I find myself examining myself. You know, when I, when I help pull a brother or sister out of a briar patch, I look at the briar patch and think, could that be me? How close am I? Have I moved my residence closer to that particular area? Need I be pulling back a little bit more myself? Self-examination. Psalm 26, verse 2. Examine me, O Lord. Try me and test my mind and my heart. That ought to be the prayer of every believer. Constantly, Lord, examine my heart. 
Cleanse me, as David said, with hyssop and I shall be clean. Or Psalm 139, verse 23, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. Self-examination. And the beautiful thing about restoring a brother or sister is as I engage in that act, I also engage in examining my own life, my own heart, before the Lord. Now this, by the way, doesn't mean that I get to go around saying, check out my big old basket of fruit. (laughs) Fruit of the Spirit, man, it's all over me. No, no, self-examination is very personal. But you can and you should be excited at the fruit of the Spirit in your life. That's okay. In fact, what Paul says here is marvelous to me. That, that we examine our own work and then we will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. I can actually take some... Mark me with this. Be careful, but listen. I can take some pride in the fruit of the Spirit in my life. Not self-righteous pride, godly pride. Kind of like the same kind of pride that I have in my children. I'm proud that my kids are my kids. They don't always do the right thing. But I'm proud of them. I love to tell my sons, my daughters, I'm proud of you. And it's that same sense of of pride that we can have, of, of boastfulness. Paul uses the word, and he's talking about when the Holy Spirit cultivates the fruit in you, when you see that fruit at work in your life, hey, it's cool to be pleased with that. Knowing where it comes from, to be pleased in the sanctifying work of the Spirit in your life. You should be able to look at your life and go, wow, ten years ago I was not where I am right now with the Lord. And then you praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Not in comparison to others, but in comparison to yourself. Are you closer to Jesus this year than you were last year? I hope so. And if you're not, maybe you need a brother or sister to help you out of the briars. But it's alright to enjoy that. In fact, 1 John chapter 3, verse 18, John says, Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. We will know by this that we are of the truth, and, check it out, we will assure our heart before Him. And maybe that's a better definition of boasting before the Lord. To boast in the Lord about what the Lord is doing in my life is to assure myself before Him. To be able to say, Lord, yes, I see love, joy, and peace. This has been a good week for patience, kindness, and goodness. Thank you, Jesus. And we assure our hearts before the Lord. Verse 5. For each one will bear his own load. And so this verse has been to some fraught with difficulty, and it doesn't have to be. First of all, I said at the very beginning, some claim it's a contradiction. You look at verse 2, and we're told, bear one another's burdens, and now in verse 5, each one will bear his own load. Well, a contradiction. No, they are not contradictory, they are complementary. The one has to do with the other. These are two burdens, two weights that we simultaneously bear, especially in the work of restoration. Number seven, this is the last one I'll give you. Restoration comes by compassion. Restoration comes by compassion. And here it is. The burden goes both ways. I am responsible to love the Lord my God and to love my neighbor as myself. Bear one another's burdens. I'm responsible. Each one will bear his own load. 
I'm responsible to love the Lord and I am responsible to love like the Lord. The burden I bear before the Lord is my relationship with Him. But part of that burden is borne out in my relationship with others. So it is both. I am called to bear one another's burdens and so then I carry my own load before the Lord. And the best example that we have in all of history, in all of Scripture, in all of eternity is none other than Jesus Himself. In fact, we read, John 19, 17, that they took Jesus and He went out bearing His own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. Jesus bore His own cross. It was a weight that only He could bear. But guess what? It was my load on that cross. He bore His own weight before the Lord. He bore His own burden. Or as Paul says, each one will bear his own load. And Jesus bore the load of the cross. But the load of the cross was my burdens. And so each one of us will before the Lord bear our own load before Him. What's my load? It's your burdens. It's the burdens of my brothers and sisters. It's those caught in the briars. It's those that I've been called to restore. It's those who don't even know Jesus that I've been called to bring to Jesus. This is the work of the harvest. So often we talk about the harvest, we immediately think of the non-believer. Well, the harvest also involves getting believers out of the briars. Restoring one another. It is the cross we bear because it looks like the cross He bore. What I'm saying is grace is the burden of love. And it's the burden to which we've been called. Are you willing to bear the burden? Are you willing to be one who does the hard work of grace? And it looks like this. It's refusing to ignore the uncomfortable elephant in the church. You know the one I'm talking about. The sin that everybody else knows is going on. We're all aware of it, but no one wants to say anything, so it just continues. It just kind of spins around and no one wants to go in and deal with it. And that's not bearing one another's burdens because that person caught in that sin is still stuck. Still needs restoring. Still needs to be helped out of the trespass. But none of us engage because, oh, it's too embarrassing, too uncomfortable, too weird to step into that. But if we don't, they stay there. And the sin continues. It's not to accept or to ignore trespasses. It's also not just to accept sins and failings. It's just the way it is. Oh, we're all broken. We're all going to sin. Oh, well. No big. No, it is a big deal. Because we've been called to restoration. And John writes in 1 John 4.20, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. The one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. How do you prove to this world that you love Jesus? By this they will all know you are my disciples, he said, if you have love for one another. It's the proof of the burden. Florence Thompson's life was a burden. But I want you to hear one more time what she said. I'd done a little bit of everything to make a living for my kids. 
that it was a burden, that she did just survive. But her children went on to grow up and live fruitful lives. Later in life, they bought Florence a house in Modesto. She didn't like the house, so she went back to her mobile home, but that's another story. The kids benefited from the burden of the mother. See, that's a great picture of this. Jesus says, John 15, 12, This is my commandment, that you love one another. Now, if we stop right there, we'd have to say, how is that Jesus' commandment? I mean, that's God's commandment. We've already heard that commandment. No, Jesus applies it to himself, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Which made it a whole new day. Grace is the burden of love. So this morning, if you are stuck in a trespass, repent. You need to know that among a fellowship of spiritual ones, that repentance is immediately responded to with love, with forgiveness, with restoration. What we're saying here is be restored. Be restored. If you're caught in a trespass, if you know someone, see someone stuck in a trespass, let me encourage you, don't bring it to me. Go to them. Just go first to them. I'm willing to be involved. But that's not the way Jesus laid it out. Matthew 18, He says, if a brother has sinned against you, you go to your brother. And if they won't listen, then you take a witness and try to restore. If they still won't listen, it's serious enough that then you involve the church. So if you know someone who's hurting, who's sinning, who's fallen, it doesn't have to be a church issue. It's a personal issue. Go to them and seek to restore them and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Let's pray. Father, You have so wonderfully taught us of grace. And now, Lord, You make grace active. You explain it to us and then You say, okay, kids, go to work. And Father, what a joyful work this is. What a wonderful burden. It is a burden that is light because, Lord, You bore it on the cross. All that has been done, all that has been needed to be done for forgiveness and restoration has been done. And now, Lord, now, Lord, all we do is offer restoration one to another. Would you make this body a place of restoration? A place where forgiveness is freely offered, such that we're not even afraid, Lord, of confession, because we know that by confession we will have restoration. And I pray, Lord, You would help us to be ready to restore even offering restoration before confession is given. Fill this place with Your grace. May we be caught up in it, Father, until we are caught up by You. In Jesus' name, Amen. So Jesus went to the cross and there He bore the weight of all His burden, which was our burdens. And right now what we're going to do is celebrate communion together and consider the cross, come to the table of the Lord, 
They're set up, you know, in the four corners of the sanctuary here. And as you're coming, if you need restoration, if you feel stuck, you're in a sin, you don't know how to get out, but you want to get out, would you please come and pray with a brother or sister and be restored and be healed today? Have that fracture set. And if you know of someone who desperately needs that restoration, come and pray for them. You don't even have to name them. In fact, the whole gossip chain doesn't need help. But we can pray because the Lord knows who is on your heart. If you want to give your life to Jesus Christ this morning, if you'd like to be baptized, come forward and let this be a time of ministry. As we take communion together, as we stand up and sing, come to the table of the Lord. Let's stand up.